0: Well, this morning, as we uh, travel through our Route 66 series, uh, we're going to take a look at the book of Nehemiah. And Nehemiah is a book about rebuilding after nearly total destruction. But in this case, it's destruction of a nation. It shows us how God can restore people after nearly total destruction, and it gives us insight as to how we should be affected by his restoration. It's a story about renewal, revival, restoration. We'll find Nehemiah on page uh, 398 of your Pew Bible, which I happened to grab one here. Uh, actually grabbed it from this side because my wife told me that uh, uh, young adults always bring their Bibles so they wouldn't miss one if I, if I grabbed it. So uh, I grabbed one of the young adults' Bibles here. But you'll find it on page 398 is where Nehemiah starts, and we're going to actually cover the whole book today. Uh, it's 13 chapters, and while you're turning there, I'll give you just a little bit of background. Um, the book of Nehemiah is uh, set in the context of God's covenant, and I know Bob covered that a little bit last week. Uh, it's set in the context of God's covenant with his people, and this covenant was first declared in Genesis, and it was perfected in Jeremiah. So we see a progressive revelation of God's covenant all the way from the Garden of Eden all the way through what we call the New Covenant in Jeremiah. And in God's covenant with us, he promises to redeem his people. In other words, he's not going to leave them to total destruction. He promises that he will have a people, a chosen people for himself, and that they'll be in his chosen place with his very presence to bless them. And we understand that in the end time, that's those that are in heaven with God, where he is the light of the, of the new, new city, Jerusalem. And God invites us to enter into a covenant relationship with him through obedience. And because we have this problem of sin, God promises a new heart to those that enter into a covenant with him. And that's the context that Nehemiah is set in. Um, However, it was a problem of breaking covenant with God that got the Jewish nation into all the trouble that they were in. And those of you that are familiar with your Old Testament history, uh, when the Jews Came, or the, the Hebrew nation came out of Egypt, uh, and they came out by just the mighty hand of God, right, through the Red Sea being parted and being led by a column of flame, and they come to Mount, uh, Mount Sinai, and God comes down on the mountain and gives them the Ten Commandments, and it didn't take them even 40 days, and they were already in disobedience and rebellion against God. And what we see is we see a history of progressive rebellion, disobedience, and sin of this people that God chose. Up to the point where we read in, uh, in Kings that there was no remedy. The people were beyond remedy. And that the only thing that could save these people of God was God actually bringing the discipline of another nation to come in and destroy them. And that's what happened. We, we understand that at the end of the time of the kings, uh, king of the world, Nebuchadnezzar came in and he destroyed Jerusalem. He first started taking captives in 605 B.C. And that progressed to the point where he actually completely leveled Jerusalem. When I say leveled, um, it was the equivalent of an atomic event in that day. So he took down the wall of the city. He took down the buildings of the city. He took down the temple. He took out the people. There was nothing left there but a hilltop of rubble and charred stone. That's what was left of Jerusalem. And he did that in 586 B.C. And those exiles that started coming out in 604, those captives that were taken out, as Babylon fell to Persia after 70 years, as Jeremiah had prophesied, they were set free to return to this land that had been totally devastated That occurred under uh, King Cyrus, the Persian king, in in 538 B.C. And some of the exiles immediately took the opportunity and they went back to the the land and into Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple. It was about 22 years it took them to actually clear the rubble, rebuild a temple, not in its former glory, and actually dedicated it in 516 B.C. About 60 years later... um, a scribe by the name of Ezra came along and he accompanied a group of these exiles as they returned to Jerusalem uh, to bring reform of temple worship. And Bob shared that last week. Well, Nehemiah was a contemporary of Ezra. In fact, you're going to see that both show up in our text today. So Nehemiah arrived in uh, Jerusalem in about 445 B.C. and he served as governor for about 12 years. Let me tell you a little bit about Nehemiah. He uh, was a cupbearer. A cupbearer uh, is a person that has uh, its a very high position within government. It's a very trusted position. So when a king uh, needs to trust somebody with his very life, he trusts the cupbearer. Because the cupbearer is the one that's looking out for the king's back. He's the one that has to sample all the food and the drink before the king takes it. So that he takes the shot instead of the king. Right? And so this is a person that's very highly placed within a government, and has uh, a lot of influence over a government with the king. And that's who Nehemiah was. He was a cupbearer. as we look at Nehemiah, we see of those 13 chapters, um, it's actually broken up into three sections. And that what you actually observe here is, is the, the uh, journal of Nehemiah. So if you can imagine keeping your diary and putting it by the bedside, think twice. It might end up somewhere couple thousand years later. This is Nehemiah's actually first-hand account of what he went through uh, as the governor in Jerusalem and going back to rebuild the city there. Um, We see that the three sections is broken up, as I mentioned. Uh, The first seven chapters is one section. The next middle section is actually probably the memoirs of Ezra. These guys were contemporaries and either uh, Nehemiah kind of grabbed uh, Ezra's diary and stuck it in his just as a record, or it may have you know, been put together by a, a composer later, an editor. And then the last uh, three chapters are, again, Nehemiah's uh, memoirs or journal. So we're going to take a look here at the first section, chapters 1 through 7. In chapters 1 through 7, I'm not going to read the whole thing, although Ezra would have. Um, we find that in this first section that God is dealing with the problem of sin, with sin, this sin's shame. He's going to remove the disgrace of a sinful people. And we read uh, here in Nehemiah, as it starts out, it says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, it appeared in the month of Chislev, in the twelfth year, or twentieth year, excuse me, uh, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that uh, Hanani one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there uh, in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. So what they were reporting back to Nehemiah was the state of destruction, not just the the physical destruction, but also the state of uh, spiritual destruction, how that impacted the people, that these people were actually in shame. And what Nehemiah understood was that this destruction was the evidence of sin. He looked back over the history of the people, and what he saw in that destruction was the sin of the people. And actually the nations around, what they saw in that destruction was an impotent God. And so that was a shame for these people. So we see that in uh, the next verse, as we read on, it says, As soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah speaking, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. That's how it impacted him when he saw this destruction. Because he knew that that meant uh, that they were destroyed because of the sin that had come into their lives. And it caused him this incredible sorrow and grief. We call that a godly sorrow. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, it says that he prayed. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So I'm reading through that prayer. What you see is that this godly sorrow, this grief over sin, ends up turning to a prayer of repentance. He's confessing the sins of the people. This is repentance is what we're seeing. Next, he reminds God of his promise. So he moves from sorrow to repentance to remembering the promise of God. He says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. What you see is he's claiming that promise. He's moving from a place of repentance into faith. And he finally asks God for grace and mercy to trust uh, and trust God as he takes action. So he's not going to sit idle. He's going to take action now, which is, is faith in action. We see He says, O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servants today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, that man being the Persian king. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. So what Nehemiah is recognizing in faith is that the providence of God had actually placed him there. The reason that he was in this position was so that God could save and redeem his people. That we see this this theme in other places in the Bible too. Esther is another example of someone that God placed in a strategic position in order to redeem and restore his people. And Nehemiah sees this. So this is an incredible prayer of confession, repentance, and faith. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he puts his faith in action. He acts on his belief in God. As he's going about his job, he's in the presence of the king, because that's where he is, and that's his job. He's elevated in position. And the king notices that he's got this grief on his face. It's that evident. And the king says, Nehemiah, you look bummed out, dude. Actually, he didn't quite say it like that. He said, Nehemiah, why is your face downcast? You're not sick. I can tell. This must be something going on in your heart. What's wrong with your heart? So Nehemiah, not Nehemiah, yeah, Nehemiah, he says, fearfully, he says, well, what's happening is, is I, I understand the destruction that has occurred for my people. That Jerusalem has been destroyed, its walls in ruins. This is the place of my ancestors. And yet now it's a pile of rubber, rubble and charred timber. And the king hears this and he says, well, what would you like me to do? And Nehemiah, being a man of prayer, he prays about it really quickly and he asks for courage and favor. And he presents his uh, position to the king. He says, I would like you to send me back to rebuild the city. And to his surprise, the king says, okay, how long do you think it'll take? And Nehemiah says, puts together a, a negotiation of what he thinks, how long it's going to take. And he's very clever because he prayed for courage. He said, oh, and by the way, will you pay for my trip? Not only am I asking you to let me go, but can you finance me? Can you pay for my house? Can you pay for the timbers that are going to be necessary in order to rebuild the city? And can you give me papers so that I have you know, easy transit as I move through your kingdom? And the king granted this. In fact we read that the king granted what was asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So again, Nehemiah recognized that this whole thing was as a result of the province of God, that the hand of God was in this. What we see here in this this passage is that repentance and faith in God are essential to God's restoration. It wasn't going to happen apart from Uh, Nehemiah repenting and then taking action in faith uh, in order to turn to God and that God honored that. Well, as we continue reading, we see that Nehemiah's repentance and faith lead to action. He travels to Jerusalem with the intent of removing his people's shame for sin. But we also read that he immediately gets pushed back. We read in uh, 2.10, it says when he had come, not even into Jerusalem yet, and we read that Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, servant, heard this, and it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So he immediately starts getting pushed back, and he gets pushed back from interesting places. He gets pushed back from Samaria, the area to the north that had been conquered by Assyria, and uh, the Samaritans ended up coming from there, a, a mixed group of people, and they... Didn't want to see the Jews reestablish Jerusalem. And then the Ammonites, that would be modern-day Jordan. And what you'll find is that the, the enemies that are listed, that are giving opposition, are all around Judea. All the way down to the coastal plain, all the way to the northern hill country, all the way over to the, the plateaus in Jordan. He gets pushback. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he arrives in town, he starts doing... survey. But he doesn't do a survey in open light. He doesn't antagonize the situation. He goes out by night, takes a small company with him. They figure out what the, the destruction is. And then they come in and present a plan to the people. And they say, this is what's going on. We can rebuild this. The hand of God is in this. Let's rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And the people say, good idea. Let's you know strengthen our hands for work. Immediately, they get pushback. It says, but when Sandalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite, the servant of Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build, and you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So he starts standing on the promise of God. That's what we see happening. And so what Nehemiah does is he starts, uh, if you read the account here, it's like if you're looking at the face of a clock, he starts at the 12 o'clock position, and he goes and he recounts how they're going to rebuild the wall going counterclockwise around the clock. He starts in the north because that's the sheep gate. That's where the people would bring in their sacrifices to the priests into the temple. So actually the priests and the leaders are the ones who start rebuilding first. And as he moves around and he recalls this account of rebuilding the wall, he goes through all of the families and the people that were participating in it. It's quite a story. But what we see is as the people do this, they start receiving um, really kind of serious opposition, not to the point of being threatened with with violence yet, but we read in uh, how Sambalat, When he heard that they were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they receive the stones or retrieve the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes. What they are building, if a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. So first they attack the people with jeers and taunts. It's like, even if a fox went on that, you guys don't know how to build a wall. It would break it down. So what did the people do? What did Nehemiah do? He prays. But the opposition gets stronger. As they pray and they continue work, there are threats of violence. And there's a plan to to stop them by attacking them. When the opposition gets stronger, the people work harder, and they use their, their heads, and they arm themselves. We read about how uh, in uh, chapter 4, verse 15, it says, When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half my servants worked on construction, and half held spears, shields, and bows and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored uh, on the work with one hand and held his weapon at the other, and each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he, was, while he was building. So this was a tough environment. They were actually fully armed in order to try and just rebuild the wall, let alone the, the full rubble of Jerusalem. So what is the result of Nehemiah's action in the face of severe opposition? Well, God acts to enable and protect his people. We read that God had frustrated the plans of violence against them. And if you read on a little bit further, the people have a confidence that our God will fight for us. They know that God is intervening on their behalf. God acts to enable and protect his people. But the threat to God's people was not just external. It was also internal as well. So Nehemiah takes that on. We read in chapter 5, it says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against the Jewish brothers. Now, you know that this is a big problem internally when the wives get involved. Because even though the wives may always be involved, you never read about it in the Bible. But when you do read about it, you know this was serious. And what was happening is, because all these people were being drawn in from the rural areas to help rebuild the wall... Um, they weren't able to tend their crops, and they didn't have much to begin with. So they weren't able to feed themselves, and the rich people were taking advantage of this. And they were selling them food, but charging them interest, because the people didn't have any money, because they had no, no crops to bring in, or no money. And so they were charging exceptionally high interest, so that the people could buy food and pay their taxes, because taxes was a big burden. They had to pay the king's tax, they had to pay the province's tax, they had to pay the governor's tax, they had to pay the the leader's tax for the temple. These people were quadruply taxed. And it got to the point where the burden was so heavy that people were actually selling their children into slavery to their own people. The, The poor were selling their kids as slaves to the rich. So this is like perfect ground for dissolving a peoples. So what does Nehemiah do? Well, he acts to restore justice for God's people by encouraging right and good behavior within the, the community. He gets all the leaders together. He says, look, you've got to stop this, this interest, this usury that you're charging your brothers, and you need to abolish slavery. That's just wrong. And we need to do something about this tax situation. But he didn't just stop there. So he was asking the leaders, stop taxing the people. But he took that personally. He was the governor, and he was entitled to a share of the income for that area, for Judea, so that he could support his household. His household was over 150 men, let alone their kids and others. And he had quite a burden. For the 12 years that he was in service as the governor there, he did not take any of that portion. He said, I'm going to live what I talk. I'm going to walk the talk. I'm not going to take a cut. I'm, I'm going to let you uh, get off without paying this tax. So what was the result of Nehemiah's actions? Well, the internal opposition ceased. What we read about is that the whole assembly said, amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. They, they did not charge uh, this interest. They did not take people's slaves. They did not exact a tax. So what we find here is that when God calls a people to do something, to restore them, in this case to remove the shame of sin, he'll provide and he'll protect. He provided for 12 years for Nehemiah. He protected the people against physical opposition. Now, the opposition to God's work of restoration didn't stop, but the work continued. And as we read on, we finally get to chapter 6, and we find out What the result is we read in chapter 6 verse 15 it says so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of elul in 52 days and when all our enemies heard of it all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our god the walls finished in 52 days that was a miracle this was rubble and burned timber And in 52 days, they completely reconstructed the wall. And not only that, people around that saw this as the shame of Israel, uh, an impotent God, recognized that this God wasn't impotent at all, that this God wasn't truly a God. And they got worried. Well, as we continue through in chapter 7, you see that it records that after uh, the wall was built, the, the shame for sin was addressed. And the people, after securing Jerusalem, returned to their towns. So we see that God will remove the shame of sin from his people's lives. He'll remove the the shame of sin from our lives. That's his his goal. But the the shame of sin um, being remedied, God wasn't done yet. God desires to continue restoring the heart of his people. This is is what he's really about. And you find this in the heart of Nehemiah in chapter 8. We read in chapter 8 that all the people gathered as one into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses uh, that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand. So this was presented to everybody. He brought it on the first day of the seventh month. And stop there for a second. First day of the seventh month. So if you know anything about the feasts of Israel, the first day of the seventh month is what they call uh, Rosh Hashanah. It is um, the festival of trumpets. It's a call to repentance. That's what that feast is about. It's ten days before the Day of Atonement. This is a time when people bring that sorrowful, um, godly uh, grief over their sin and they repent before the Lord and they present that uh, on the Day of Atonement uh, an atonement is made for those sins. So it's a time of repentance. That's what the people here were, were uh, hearing and understanding. And they, they read from, uh, from this law, uh, facing the square, from early morning until midday. So if you think I'm going a little bit long, I'm not going as long as Ezra did. In the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In fact, if we read a little bit further, it says they read from the book, uh, having it clearly explained to them by the Levites who gave an interpretation of it, so that the people understood the reading. The people understood their sin. As they read through the law, they understood what it was that caused them separation from God and it led to their destruction. And the people are moved to repentance. We read that Nehemiah and Ez, um, Ezra, as they were... Uh, Speaking to the people, uh, they said, "Don't. This day is holy for the Lord your God. Don't mourn and weep, because it says, For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. These people understood and took it to heart. So then Ezra said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. He gives them one of the key transitions from repentance to salvation. The joy of the Lord is your strength. What does that mean? The joy of the Lord, God's joy, that's your strength. What is God's joy? We understand that joy is something more than just happiness. Joy is like a deep-seated um, delight. It's a delight in in this case, a delight in life. The joy of the Lord is the delight that he has in knowing that he has made a way of life for a people that were in complete destruction. People that had lost, been disconnected from life in the Garden of Eden throughout. The progression of history. The Lord knew that he had a solution. That he had a plan of redemption. That's the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is his plan of redemption. His promise of salvation. And that that salvation would be completed in the one who, when he came to die for our sins, says, This is the new covenant in my blood. He's talking about that covenant relationship with God that can be restored such that we can be back in, in the presence of God, truly alive. That's the joy of the Lord. And what he's telling these people is, I understand your grief about sin. You don't need to be sad about this, but you need to understand that what God is doing for you in repentance and bringing you into salvation is actually your strength. It's your security. This is what you need to hold on to. This is the anchor of your soul. See, God wasn't just about rebuilding a wall and rebuilding a city. He wasn't about restoring a community. He was about restoring the hearts of those in that community. And he wanted them to know what the basis of that restoration is. It's his plan of redemption. So as we read, the people actually got it. It says, And the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood, understood the words that were declared to them. They got it. In fact, they got it so much that they came back the next day. So this uh, festival of trumpets, although it's a single day, it's actually ten days of repentance. They come back on the second day, we read, and the heads of the, um, the fathers of all the people, And the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They wanted more. They wanted to know the whole plan of God. And as they read through, they came to what is called the festival or feast of booths, Sukkot. What it is is that it commemorates um, when the people had been wandering in the desert and how God provided for them. His salvation and his provision... And his protection as they wandered in the wilderness. That they lived in booze. They, they didn't have the promised land yet. But what they had is they had the surety that they were under the true king. And that's what we understand the festival of booze is all about. It's all about being underneath the true king. Underneath his uh, shadow of protection. Actually having eternal life. And being led by the eternal King, the people got it. it. Says all the assembly and those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths from the days of Joshua the son of Nun, Joshua, and the days uh, the people of Israel until that day had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And that day, and day by day, from the first day to the last day, they read from the book of the law of God. These people got it. What was going on here? was a revival. These people had, had their hearts restored in the presence of destruction. It was a revival. In fact, they even had tents, right? It was a tent revival. And so, as we read through, we see how um, this impacts the people's lives. We read on through chapter 9. Um, we see that uh, they respond in worship and prayer. In fact, we see that in 9 3. It says, uh, they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. Again, I, mean, I know I'm going long, but not as long as Ezra. And for another quarter, if they made confession, uh, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. This is what a revival looks like. It's when people take um, the revelation of God seriously, that it's alive in their heart. And that's what God's all about. As a result of this revival and restoration of the heart, we read that the people renew a covenant with God. So they go to God and they say, yep, we know we sinned. Um, We're repenting. We want to put this in writing. We want you to know, God, that we are your people. We're going to join you in this covenant relationship. So they put it in writing and they seal it with the, the high leaders. The governors put his seal on it. The Levites that worked in the temple put their seal on it. The priests put their seal on it. And then they enumerated what the areas were. They knew from their understanding of sin that they had been like a harlot, that they had not been true to God, and this was uh, evident, like through uh, intermarriage with the with the peoples around them, that that practice of the world crept in. And they said, "Nope, we're gonna we're gonna maintain fidelity. We're gonna maintain the Sabbath, which was about um, coming to God in." enjoying and resting in him as lord they're going to keep the temple worship and sacrifice and offerings and what we see here is that repentance and faith and god's salvation are essential to this restoration and god will renew the hearts of his people as they turn to him that's what's going on here this revival god will restore his people to his place and bless them with his presence well in the final section of nehemiah 11 through 13, we see that this covenant relationship between God and his people is restored. The people return to God's service. They're his people, and he is their God. The people return to God's promised land. They're in his chosen place, and the people return to God's salvation. They're blessed with his presence. We read in the first 24 verses of chapter 11 how the people repopulated Jerusalem. They actually drew lots. They recognized that the heart of this community needed needed to be maintained. So they actually, every tenth family, through drawing lots, came and repopulated Jerusalem. They, uh, those that weren't selected went back to their ancestral lands. That which God had told them was good, they went and did. And finally, we read about how they celebrated God's restoration by dedication of the wall and rebuilding this wall. And again, I'll give you the picture of a, of a clock and looking at what the wall looks like. Now, the wall wasn't circular like a clock is, but you still have positions on the clock. The temple is on the eastern side of the city. You come in through the east gate, so that would be the 3 o'clock position as you're coming into the temple. So where the people started was on the west side at the 9 o'clock position. And what they did is they broke up into two groups. And one group went north, up around the wall, And came to just uh, to the north side of the temple. And one group went south along the wall. And came up just to the south of the temple. When they were 180 degrees out. Totally pointed the opposite direction from God. They returned to him. That's what this celebration was about. Walking the wall. It was coming to God. And we read about when they got there. When the two choirs joined. Right? The choir walk in the north wall, the choir, walk in the south wall, and all the people following them. that they had an incredible time of worship. This was all about worship. In fact, we read in chapter 12, verse 43, it says, And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. This is revival. That's what it looks like. Nehemiah is a book about restoration of the heart, reviving the heart. Well, as a result of this restoration and revival of the heart, uh, God's people end up um, completing the work uh, and servicing the temple and actually restoring Jerusalem. But Nehemiah has one last uh, concern for his people. So if you look at chapter 13, what you see is you see a warning. So here you are in the midst of revival, what's going to kill you? And he gives four warnings. He tells it, um, he, at the end of his 12 years, he had to go back to Babylon. He comes back three years later, and sin had already started creeping back in. And this is what it looked like. Tobiah, who was their enemy, this worldly man, actually staked out an apartment in the temple. And Nehemiah finds out, and he kicks him out it doesn't just kick him out. He actually takes all of his stuff and throws it out, right? So he addresses this problem of the world creeping in. What this shows is that people must not allow the kingdom of the world to creep into their heart. He also found out that the, the Levites were not being paid. People must not abandon dedication to God's service, right? But they had been. So he reinstated that. He brought the kingdom of God into the kingdom of the world rather than the other way around. He found out that the Sabbath had become just another business day, that people were buying and selling and, and doing their normal due, and they weren't reverencing God. Rather, people must keep the ordinance of God, the Sabbath. This religious practice that people do when they come together is about giving glory to God and worshiping him and keeping our heart pure. He also found that intermarriage had recurred. People must keep themselves pure and dedicated to God. Now, Not allowing the kingdom of the world to have a foothold in their lives. These are all true statements for us today. This is what happens that derails us from a place of revival into a place of a faith that's flat. People must obey God and embrace his covenant. People must protect themselves against sin. But what we know is that God will restore his people to his place and bless them with his presence. See, God is a covenant keeper. And he's demonstrated that throughout history. And he demonstrates that in Nehemiah. So I reflect back on this, I realize that the joy of the Lord is my strength. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's what it's all about. Nehemiah's world was one that was marred by the destruction of sin. And it grieved him. He saw the result of sin, of his sins and his people. And he was moved to repentance and faith and the salvation of God. God heard Nehemiah's prayer of confession and restored his heart. God heard the people's prayer of confession and restored their hearts. The people were revived and restored. But what about you? Do you look around and see the destruction of sin? Is there a revival in your life? Or do you only have grief? Is the joy of the Lord your strength? You know, we all see sin in the world, certainly, but do you see it in your life? If so, where's your strength? Where's your security? It should be in our Lord who has rescued us and restored a relationship with him through his promise, through his covenant love, through his son, the life of the son of God, Jesus. This morning you have an opportunity for revival and restoration. That's what's being offered as we read through Nehemiah. We're going to have an opportunity here um, to respond to that. And we're going to have a, a closing song and a prayer, actually prayer and song. And uh, I'd like to invite you, if the Lord's been speaking to your heart this morning, and I realize it's a long narrative about rebuilding a city. But it's not just about rebuilding a city. It's about a relationship with God. It's about a heart that is restored and revitalized. If you're not in that place and you would like to be, the elders would like to meet with you. Or if you would just like to have a quiet time of prayer, we have a prayer room here. This is the time that revival can start in your life. We're going to close uh, this morning with a short prayer followed by the hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus. And this is an amazing hymn. Uh, Evan uh, pointed it out to me, and I looked it up. These lyrics are based on the last words of a man from northeast India who, along with his family, um, was converted to Christianity in the middle of the 19th century. When he was commanded, when he was told by the chief of his village um, to renounce his faith, he declared... I have decided to follow Jesus. In response to the threats, there was opposition to the point of physical violence. In response to the threats to his, va- his family, he continued, though no one joins me, still I will follow. His wife was killed and he was executed while singing the cross before me, the world behind me. His display of faith is reported to have led to the conversion of both the chief and the other villagers. That's what revival does. It's not just your heart that's at stake here. It's the heart of the community. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Lord, um, I just thank you for opportunity as we've uh, moved through the Bible, as Bob's calling it Route 66, and study your word. We see a consistent theme, a theme of you reaching out to us of offering us life, that truly that which is your delight, the joy of of the Lord, the plan of salvation, is available to us and can be the anchor of our soul. And Lord, I would just ask this morning that as people ponder this simple verse, that you would challenge them. Challenge them if there's sin in their life or if there's just a flat relationship with you that they can change that today, this morning, and give them the courage, Lord, to come forward. Lord, I thank you for this. In the name of your Son, our beloved Savior, Jesus, amen.